You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, this week's show is split into two parts. Um, In the first part, I'm going to be joined by Ariel Edwards-Levy from the Huffington Post, a returning uh, contributor to the podcast, to talk about what's going on over in the States. So believe it or not, the race to take on Donald Trump in uh, November of 2020 has gathered pace. Uh, It's very much up and running. Um, The Democrats over there have been having their first series of major debates, and uh, we're going to be looking at what the polls say and what might come uh, out of those debates in uh, in terms of the race moving forward. And we're also going to be talking a bit about Trump and his re-election chances. So something for those of you that are interested in that topic to really get your teeth into. And then later on the show, I'm going to be taking us through some of the more recent polling on the uh, Tory leadership contest. Um, probably the, if not the only show in town, certainly a major show in town uh, in British politics at the moment, who is going to emerge in July as the uh, successor to Theresa May. We're going to be going over, we're going to be going over some of the the poll numbers and what we're learning from the campaign at the moment. Certainly seems like Boris Johnson's on course for number ten, um, but what do the voters think? Because you know, Tory members may choose the next uh, the next leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister. But if there is a general election to come, which uh, many suggest there might be, sooner rather than later, then obviously the views of the wider public will become um, very important very quickly. So we'll be looking at some of those numbers. Um, But first, uh, over to my conversation earlier this week with Ariel Edwards-Levy. Ariel is from the Huffington Post, an expert on uh, polling in the States. And I wanted to get her thoughts on what we'd seen this week. So here is that conversation. So I'm here with Ariel Edwards-Levy from the Huffington Post. Ariel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. So um, where to start? I suppose there's obviously been these debates um, this week and we'll get on to um, what we learned and maybe what comes next. But what was the dynamic of the um, Democrat race going into Wednesday and Thursday? What was the polling showing? I think before this debate, because there hadn't been any really high profile news events like this for a while, after all the candidate launches, we had kind of settled into a pretty stable status quo. And what we were mostly seeing was that Biden had, you know, as durable as any very early lead can be, his was fairly stable, you know, in the 30s. And then you had Bernie Sanders behind him. And then you had sort of a third tier fading down into the lower polling candidates. Um, The changes that you'd sort of seen over that time were uh, Elizabeth Warren sort of catching up to Sanders and joining him in that second tier. And, you know, sort of maybe brief spikes and falls for Beto O'Rourke or for Pete Buttigieg. But, you know, mostly what you saw was Biden as the front runner, Sanders and Warren behind, and then sort of another group of people failing to get over 10 percent. And that has been the case for, you know, probably a couple of months now. Sure. So let's go over some of those names. I think um, Joe Biden, obviously former vice president, and uh, Bernie Sanders, who ran against Hillary Clinton, will be um, listeners will be pretty familiar with those. Um, but Elizabeth Warren, tell me a bit about her, because um, you mentioned she'd been sort of improving in the polls. Um, do we know what that's down to? So Elizabeth Warren is um, a senator who also has come out with very sort of progressive appeal and has sort of focused her campaign around the idea that she has made real, real sort of substantive policy plans. And I think, you know, she's managed to get some positive press for that. She's managed to get some attention for that. And I think what she's offering is sort of appealing to um, probably a certain swath of the electorate as an alternative against Donald Trump. 
And so, you know, I think that appeal has helped her to sort of raise her profile in the last couple of months. And so we've seen that happen. And now we'll see whether that continues after the debate. And we'll get onto the debates in a minute, because obviously I think a lot of the the context of the uh, the race well, might not shift that much, but it could could potentially shift after what we've seen this week. But tell me a bit about Joe Biden going b- before this week. So, I mean, the front runner pretty convincingly. I mean, what's his appeal as far as you can tell to Democrats? I mean, one thing obviously is just that he is by far the most recognizable name. He benefits from Obama's uh, President Obama's legacy. And, you know, because that was the last Democratic president and because especially in retrospect, he has sort of enormous fondness among the Democratic Party. I think that has helped Joe Biden. Joe Biden's base has always been especially divided generationally. So if you look at his support, it's much more from the older side of the uh, Democratic Party. He also has had substantial black support, which will be an interesting thing to watch. We can get into that later. And what's sort of been interesting is that so far, his support among those groups has been pretty stable, despite, you know, some of the sort of controversies that are inherent both from his record and from being the attention from being a front running candidate. So there have been questions about, you know, sort of the way his being touchy feely with women, you know, it, it's not a harassment thing, but he has been touching people in a way that made some women uncomfortable. He has a habit of saying things like telling boys, oh, you need to protect your sister, which sort of caused some, you know, consternation. And then obviously he has this sort of substantive um, history of issues with race and issues like abortion, where his positions are or have been a little out of step with the Democratic Party as it is today. And mm-hmm. so far, none of that has really hurt him. But you know, he hasn't been attacked for it by other candidates that strongly until recently. Sure. And I, I suppose when, when you're on 30% of the vote, that um, I mean, it's a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it. But if you're on sort of 30, 35%, that still leaves two thirds that, um, that aren't currently picking you um, as the front runner initially. But I suppose it's a very wide field. Um, and thinking about this week with the debates, then, so um, we had debates on Wednesday and Thursday night, which I, I guess is because there's so many candidates still at this stage. Um, so t- let's start with Wednesday night then. So who was who was up on Wednesday and what did we learn, if anything? So what happened was, yeah, there are, you know, 24, 25, depending on how you count candidates, 20 of them qualified for the debates, which basically required to be polling at about 1% in a couple of uh, surveys. And then they were divided randomly into two groups. And sort of by luck of the draw, the first debate ended up as something of an undercard. You had Elizabeth Warren, who was probably the only real top tier candidate in that first debate. You also had um, Beto O'Rourke, who was earlier more of a presence and sort of faded out. And you had a lot of people um, who were sort of looking to gain steam. Uh, You had Cory Booker, who I think is probably one of the other notable presences um, in that debate. Um, That ended up being one of those. I think what's really interesting, actually, is you can see, and I'll talk about this a little more later when we get to the second debate, but the difference in coverage is that the first night, I don't think you had the clear sense, oh, somebody won this. Mm. People mentioned that uh, Julian Castro, who had so far failed to get a lot of attention in the race, you know, did a very credible job. That Booker did a credible job. That Warren did a credible job. But I don't think there was any sense that somebody had really run away with the debate. Mm. And then we move on to, um, and we might come back to Elizabeth Warren a bit later when we talk about the race generally, I suppose. But let, let's let's talk about last night then. So, I mean, clearly, 
Um, so we had Kamala Harris going sort of toe to toe with Joe Biden, which I want, want to get your sort of take on. But it seems like just from being a Brit over here and you know watching what's how Sky News covers it um, internationally, that was very much the the front of the news. Kamala Harris taking on Joe Biden. I mean, tell listeners a bit about that and and kind of how you, how you see that, if not changing the race because it's too early to tell, but how do you see that impacting uh, the dynamic at the moment? Yeah, I mean that exchange sort of sucked the oxygen, I think, out of a lot of the rest of the things that were happening in that debate. And it's, you know, sort of the first blood being drawn of the race. And, you know, I think for many of these candidates, part of the the challenge was to say, hey, there's a lot of candidates out here. It's not um, just uh, Joe Biden and maybe one or two other options. And I think uh, Kamala Harris made, you know, an effective argument that she is somebody to be considered. She made it easy to visualize her on a debate stage with Donald Trump. And I also think, you know, she wasn't the one who brought this up, but you really could see that generational split um, between candidates going on there. Yes, just for listeners' benefit. So Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders as well are in their late 70s as can so um, even by uh, American standards, where candidates can be a bit older, I think um, they're, they're quite old uh, for presidential candidates. But so what was it actually? What was the issue that um, Harris was confronting Joe Biden over? So what she was confronting him over was um, issues of race and, you know, especially his record on issues like busing, which was the practice of bringing um you know, kids from other parts of town to different schools in order to help integration. She made the point that, you know, she also went after Biden for when he had previously opposed busing and he had previously talked um, in sort of flattering terms about working with people who had been uh, segregationists. And so you got to see just you know, some people have made the point, this is what you get from having a much more diverse debate stage is that you get these perspectives of people who have lived very different lives within the American, you know, public realm. Mm. And I suppose like, I'm always the first, I mean, part of the reason I started this podcast was to try and sort of downplay sort of individual events and things, because, you know, people often overreact to them in the media and stuff. But looking at last night, it did feel quite significant. I mean, if you look at the numbers, I mean, Joe Biden does seem to draw a lot of support from um, African-American uh, um, Democrat voters, doesn't he? So I suppose if, if Kamala Harris really does draw blood over the next week or so on this, it could really hurt him and really help her, could it? It could. And, you know, I will say that this is one of those things where it's very easy for the people watching the debate to get a little ahead of the numbers. Mm. And I think it's a good idea to wait and see how this actually plays out. You know, one possibility that I would raise is that, you know, I think uh, Kamala Harris was not not a complete unknown, but there were many people in the electorate who didn't know who she is. You know, she's a senator from California. And I think that there's a possibility that she definitely gets a bump out of this. But we don't know necessarily if she's drawing her support directly from Biden or from the rest of the field. We don't know which groups that argument is going to resonate most strongly uh, with. So I think we have to see to a little extent how it's going to play out. Hmm, absolutely. And when we think, I mean, looking at some of the other candidates that were on stage, I mean, Bernie Sanders, obviously, lots of interest in him over here. Comparisons are drawn with um Jeremy Corbyn, who's the the Labour, the, the opposition leader here, and similar age, um, both sort of outsider leftist candidates. Um, I'm trying to choose my language carefully to make sure I don't offend anybody. Um, but yeah, so there are similarities and read-acrosses that people make between those two, although there are obvious differences as well. 
how do you assess his campaign? Because I suppose being the runner-up to Hillary Clinton uh, four years ago, or a little bit less than four years ago, um, one would imagine that he would have been one of the front runners, and I guess he is to some extent, but he doesn't seem to be leading the field in a way that maybe you might have expected. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for Bernie Sanders, and you saw this in this debate, is that he is exactly who he is. And I don't think he has trouble staying on brand because that is just so authentically the way that he approaches campaigns and policy. And, you know, second to Joe Biden, he is probably the most known quantity of the race. And so what sort of remains to be seen is the same challenge that, you know, you mentioned with Joe Biden having 30 percent and not the rest of the 70 is, you know, which how much of the remaining um, electorate are thinking about him and how many how much of that can they can he convince to join him? So, you know, I think he's still definitely not somebody to rule out. And, and, and f- final one in the top tier, I think, unless I've missed somebody. Um, Pete Buttigieg, I mean, he's had a bit of controversy. So this is the mayor in where it's South Bend, Indiana, I think. Um, so wh- how, wh- how did he get on in the debate and what, what's, what's been going on with him lately? I mean, tell listeners a bit about him. So um, Pete Buttigieg is one of the few candidates who really sort of managed to rise above the pack, you know, in the earlier stages of this race by being sort of very media savvy and good at capturing attention. You know, he's a very smart guy, clearly very sort of intellectual in a slightly quirky sort of way. He has, um, you know, people I think were interested by the way he was able to engage with things. But right now he's facing um, an officer involved shooting in his town that has raised a lot of issues of race. Uh, the officer was white. The person who was shot was black. And, you know, you saw him having to grapple with that during the debate. And, you know, I can't predict how people are going to react to mm-hmm. how he um, handled himself in the debate. I've seen sort of mixed opinions on that. But, you know, I don't think it was probably a standout moment for him. I want to get on to Trump and the general, but before I do, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to ask you at this early stage who you think is going to win or anything like that. But yeah. who, who are the who are the t- maybe a, a way to approach this for for people that are listening and trying to get their heads around the, the dynamics of the campaign? I mean, what are the different kinds of voter groups within the Democratic primary uh, sort of electorate that are important? And therefore, if I'm someone in Britain watching the race, uh, you know, I want to look through the appropriate prism to see which types of groups are going to be decisive. I mean, what sort of groups are there in the Democrat primary audience that are important? So, I mean, the one thing I will say, first of all, is that my opinion has over, has always been that the concept of lanes are a little bit overrated. And that's the idea that, you know, there's, you know, a group of people who want to vote for the more progressive candidate or want to vote for the centrist candidate or want to vote for, you know, a Washington insider or want to vote for a female candidate. And mm-hmm. I don't think it, uh, preferences break down that clearly. Um, there's one poll I looked at back in April that asked people who they were considering voting for. And of people who were considering voting for Joe Biden, who, you know, was also the front runner, half would also consider Bernie Sanders, who's very different ideologically. 43% would also consider Harris, who's very different demographically. 38% would consider Warren. 35% would consider Beto O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg. So there's a lot of overlap and it's still sort of very in show it. And there's a lot of room for people to move around rather than, you know, saying this is the kind of candidate who likes this. This is the kind of candidate who likes that. Mm. That being said, the big um, variations that you see right now 
as I mentioned, first, our age is the really major one. And that's especially in the case of Joe Biden, whose appeal is so lopsided between older voters and younger voters. And then you do also see racial and educational divides where um, people like um, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg have been doing better among white and among educated voters. And, you know, so for everybody, I think there's this challenge of a how do you find a base that helps you win and be how you expand to people who might not be your natural consist- uh, constituency? Yes, and we're watching very closely to see um, how the democratic race uh, progresses. I mean, let's think about, I mean, it's a long way away yet, but let's think about the general. Um, President Trump, I mean, how how popular is he at the moment um, among Americans? And I mean, are there any sort of uh, read acrosses we can look at by historic standards uh, that give us any indication as to his re-election chances? I mean, I know we can't say... Uh, you know, in a binary way, he will or won't be re-elected. But is there any sense of which way the wind's blowing at all? Yeah, um, I think, you know, anyone's guess on that is probably as good as mine. I mean, here's the thing. Donald Trump is not popular. His, fav- his you know, ratings are consistently a little bit worse than many presidents are at this stage. Um, his disapproval is higher. He also has incredibly stable uh, ratings, which is sort of unusual for a president. Like they've been going within this extremely narrow band. They don't fluctuate a lot because I think for the most part, people either like Donald Trump and they or they don't like him, and that's not going to change. What's interesting in this race is that you do see things that usually work together, different factors that work together sort of separated. For instance, the economy. Usually, if there's a good economy, that's a good sign for an incumbent president. But usually, if there's a good economy, that's helping the president's approval rating. And you're not seeing those things tied together as much as you used to. Um, One thing that I have been relying on is there are people who've gone back and looked at the polling on, you know, matching up the president or matching up candidates who might face each other in a general election and seeing, well, when does that start to look predictive? And the answer is sometime next year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are definitely a lot of different models and approaches that you can take to figuring out right now whether a president is likely to win re-election. I think probably the best answer anyone could give you is that, you know, he's absolutely not a lock. There are a lot of warning bells for him, but that's it's not like he's definitely going to lose. He should not be counted out at all. Ariel Edwards-Levy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Ariel Edwards-Levy from the Huffington Post. Big thanks to Ariel for uh, joining us and giving her uh, giving us her expertise um, on, on this week's events in the uh, Democratic primary race. Certainly something uh, to keep a close eye on to see who it will be um, that will emerge in 2020 to uh, take on President Trump um, uh, next November. Um from from my part point of view, uh, looking at the uh, events of this week and the polls, um, it certainly seems like you would be buying shares, if that's such a phrase, uh, in Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris at the moment. Um, so that's the senator from Massachusetts and the senator from California. Um, but that being said, obviously it's extremely early. Um, Iowa's not till you know next year, and Iowa and New Hampshire, and then obviously you know the whole race gathers pace then. But it just feels like when you see um, uh, Vice President Joe Biden on the stage that he's a bit of yesterday's man. Um, It may well be um, that in the end, all that matters is a perceived notion of electability versus Trump. And Democrats decide that their their priority is just just to get Trump out. And and they see Biden as the best way to do that, warts and all. But I don't know. I I can't shake the feeling that um, 
really, if you're looking at uh, the leader of the Democratic Party of America in, in, in 2020, um, I don't know that that's Joe Biden, to be honest. Um, whereas you can see that sort of tough talking, um, uh, more radical agenda of, uh, of, of Harris, well, and, and certainly Elizabeth Warren, uh, might resonate a lot more. Um, as time goes by. But of course, the real unknown, as with anything, um, is that it's a very, very wide field at the moment, even though there is very clearly a top tier of five. So when people start dropping out, who gains the most each time is going to be highly significant. But I think the big winner of this week is clearly um, Kamala Harris, um, someone that people have been talking up for a long time, who hasn't broke through in the polls quite yet, um, but certainly someone that um, you would expect to see a bump from um, in the short term, but whether she can sustain it, who knows? Um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, for the second uh, part of this podcast, maybe the last sort of five, ten minutes, I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, events closer to home. That is, of course, the uh, leadership contest between um, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson in the Conservative Party. And there's been a lot of numbers out at the moment from us at Ipsos Mori um, looking at this. And I just wanted to take listeners through that um, if they haven't seen them already. So, so we asked um, quite a few different questions um, on this, so it's, it's, it's quite uh, tricky to unpick the, the ones that are the most pertinent. But a question that we track over time is um, whether or not people agree or disagree that candidate X has what it takes to be a good prime minister. Now, Jeremy Hunt had 31% agree that he has what it takes to be a good prime minister. In comparison, Johnson had 34%. Now, both had increased significantly from when we last asked this question um, back in uh, May, probably because they're more in the news at the moment. Um, clearly, they're both running for prime minister directly now. Um, so I guess people are thinking them of, of them more in that context. But what was interesting was that Jeremy Hunt had 42% disagreeing, which meant he has a net rating of minus 11. And Boris Johnson had 53% disagreeing, which means he has a, a, a net rating of minus 19. But I should say with Boris Johnson that um, when we last asked this question, 64% disagreed. So although a majority disagree that Boris Johnson has what it takes to be prime minister, those ratings are improving. And I guess you would expect them to improve further if he did, as people expect, he does win um, the contest and becomes prime minister because there's nothing uh, that convinces people more that you have what it takes to be a prime minister than being one. Um, but one of the things that we also did uh, was ask about some specific personality traits. And this is what I thought was um, really quite um, interesting to, to look at. So um, what, was in, what, what we found was that Jeremy Hunt tended to be more associated than Boris Johnson with what I would call the more traditional attributes of what people see as being a, a good prime minister. So, for example, I mean, these, these gaps aren't huge, it should be said, but um, Jeremy Hunt led by 37 to 33 over Johnson on being a capable leader. Um, he led by 32 to 27 on being good in a crisis and by 36 to 27 on having sound judgment. Um, on the flip side, I mean, Boris Johnson led convincingly 79% to 18 on has a lot of personality um, and 64% to 50% on um, being patriotic. Um, but he actually also um, led uh, sort of the unwelcome uh, sort of uh, virtue of being more style than substance by 54% to 29 to almost double the rating of Jeremy Hunt there. And uh, meanwhile, Jeremy Hunt led Boris Johnson on being a good representative for Britain on the world stage by uh, 41 uh, points to, to 228. So in terms of personality traits, um, looking um, reasonably good there uh, for Jeremy Hunt uh, in terms of uh, some of these uh, personal characteristic traits. But it does raise a question, though, in 2019, what do people actually want? Um, we did some focus groups uh, for the Today programme with uh, Nick Robinson that have been released uh, today, today being Friday the 28th of June. Um, where Nick Robinson was moderating these groups that we'd organised and sort of asked some of these questions. And what 
What really, what really struck me listening uh, to those groups, and you can go on the BBC website to see some of the um, highlights from the BBC, was the extent to which people kind of acknowledged that Jeremy Hunt was probably a more serious, more professional, um, more traditional kind of politician that could clearly do the job physically of being the Prime Minister. There was just this sense that people wanted to kind of um, roll the dice a bit with Boris Johnson and just... Um, you know, see see what he could do. I mean, it wasn't that people didn't recognise um, Johnson's um, apparent flaws. I mean, people referred to him as bumbling and an idiot. Someone used that phrase. Um, really unpredictable. But there was a sense that he brought energy and passion to things and that um, that unpredictability um, might even benefit Britain in negotiations with the EU because the EU might think that he would walk away. And I should say these were groups of conservative voters, so not necessarily representative of swing voters or the general public. But I was really taken aback by how actually there was this sense, and this is the phrase that I use rather than the people in the group, there was this sense that people just wanted to roll the dice of Boris Johnson and see uh, what would happen. Um, although I should say, I mean, Jeremy Hunt did have his supporters too. Now, of course, conservative voters don't get a vote in the leadership contest, Um it's Conservative Party members that do, but I, I do think that we should pay attention to what voters are thinking at the moment, because ultimately, if you believe what people are saying, that a general election um, will come soon, then, OK, Tory members might choose the next Prime Minister, but voters, uh, the views of voters are going to be very important. So if you're interested in those groups, um, do check them out on the BBC website, or um, I've tweeted them out earlier myself as well. Um, so there's, there's some interesting nuance in those groups that you don't necessarily get in the numbers. But, I mean, final point on the numbers, um, one of the things that we did was we asked people, um, uh, the general public, who do you think would make the most capable Prime Minister? Jeremy Hunt or, or, or Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn? So two separate questions. And what struck me was that both of the uh, Conservative leadership candidates convincingly led um, Jeremy Corbyn on this measure. Jeremy Hunt led him by uh, 52 points to 29. That's a lead of 23 points. Uh, and Boris Johnson led Corbyn by uh, slightly less, 18 points, so 51 to 33. Um, and what we've also seen in our most recent uh, political monitor is that um, Jeremy Corbyn's um, sort of leader leader ratings, so this is um, how satisfied or dissatisfied people are with the job uh, Corbyn's doing as leader of the opposition, are now the worst in our of all time, essentially, uh, of us tracking these numbers. So since 1980... Um, 17% satisfied of Corbyn, 75% dissatisfied. That's a net rating of minus 58, which is now worse than anything um, that Michael Foote, who was the previous uh, holder of that unwanted record of the least popular leader of the opposition of all time, um, that's actually a lower score than, 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 than Foote achieved. Although in reality, um, statistically speaking, um, yeah, very slight, uh, a couple of points in, in, in a net rating. But still, I think it's worth saying that at the moment, Corbyn not really divisive as such because he's just unpopular, like 75% dissatisfied with the job he's doing. Now, whether that changes in a general election, it has happened before, um, or whether that changes with a change in a Labour policy on Brexit, um, which some people are saying could happen, um, we don't know. And I think it's important to say that these things are not set in stone, um, but nevertheless, clearly not very good for the Labour Party to have a leader that is um, so unpopular. Uh, and final point on the numbers out this week was that um, our voting intention figures, headline voting intention figures, got a lot of attention because, um, mainly because, uh, the Brexit party were convincingly lower than some other people have them. So our headline voting intention figures were the Tories on 26, which was up 1, Labour 24, which was down 3, Lib Dems on 22, which was up 7, uh, and, and this is from May, I should say, and then the Brexit party on 12, which is minus 4, and then the Greens were on 8. Um 
to put this in context, YouGov have uh, most recent figures had a top line of um, the Tories on 22, Labour on 20, the Lib Dems on 19, and the Brexit Party also on 22 to joint top with the Conservatives and the Greens on 10. So a, a 10 point disparity there um, between uh, YouGov and um, Ipsos Mori on on the, the the Brexit Party's figure. Now it's hard to sort of say exactly what what the cause of that is. I mean, Ipsos Mori do uh, phoning uh, phone polls, whereas YouGov are online. Um, but probably the more significant difference is that um, YouGov uh, prompt for the Brexit Party uh, on the first page, if you like, whereas um, at the moment Ipsos Mori are still treating the Brexit Party as an other. So, for example, the way these things normally work is that you get asked, would you vote Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrat or other? And then if you say other, then you say, well, OK, would that be the Green Party? Would it be the Brexit Party? Would it be whoever? And that's done for a very uh, logical reason, which has sort of historically worked well, which is that smaller parties tend to get overstated in opinion polls. Um, it's not quite as straightforward as that, but there is an element of that. But of course, sometimes smaller parties become bigger parties, and uh, you have to make a judgment call, essentially. At what point do they become big enough that you should prompt for them on the uh, the first page? Because it can, it can have an impact. So, I mean, I don't think there's a, a sort of answer to that right now. Um, we're constantly reviewing our methods to see whether or not we think the Brexit Party should be prompted. That may well change in the future. Um, that's not set in stone. But all I would say is that um, all of the pollsters pretty much overstated the Brexit Party in the European elections. So do bear that in mind. So, I mean, I, I was surprised. I'll, I'll acknowledge that um, we had, you know, the Brexit Party came in at 12 points there in our most recent poll. Um, we had them at 16 back in May. Um, it wouldn't be too shocking to know that the Brexit Party fell back a bit after their high of the European elections in the middle of a Conservative leadership contest where everyone's focusing on the Tories. But nevertheless, yeah, that is, that is you know, 12 points is lower than other people have them. We should acknowledge that. Um, we should also acknowledge that the Brexit Party have been overstated in other polls. So it doesn't necessarily mean um, when you have an outlier, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Um, but again, we'll be, we'll be monitoring that sort of closely in the future. So yeah, lots of numbers there anyway on um, on, on Hunt and Johnson. Do check out um, the Ipsos Mori website for that and, and others. And there'll be some more numbers on uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage on some of these issues to come sort of early next week. So do keep an eye out for that as well. Um, but for now, that's all we've got time for for this week's podcast. Hope you enjoy the sort of uh, two topics today, looking at the uh, US presidential uh, sort of race, uh, the st starting gun being fired there very much on the Democrat side this week. Uh, and also, of course, the ongoing race between Hunt and Johnson to be the next Prime Minister. If you like what you hear, as ever, please do share us on social media. Give us a nice rating on I iTunes or a positive comment. Um, I'm told the algorithm gods uh, uh, mean uh, that, that doing that sort of helps uh, us get more listeners, which we very much appreciate. Um, but even just telling a friend about us um, or, or getting in touch and giving uh, you know, on social media or elsewhere to say you like the show is all very much appreciated. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening and have a great uh, sunny weekend. <laughs>